Shall we pray? Our Father, we know that our, it'll take a whole lifetime to begin to fully understand uh, the work of Christ on our behalf. We know that we will be singing the praises uh, to our Savior for eternity for what he has done. Give us a greater understanding tonight as we reflect upon the law that was given uh, from our Creator and why it required the death of Christ. We pray that you would apply your word to our hearts and our minds tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to open in the uh, order of worship the copy there of the Law of God, the Westminster Confession, chapter 19. We will be looking tonight at sections 1 and 2. If you do not have an announcement sheet, you, you can find the Westminster Confession in the back of the Psalter hymnal, chapter 19. And please open God's word with me to Colossians 3 and also Romans 2. Colossians 3 and Romans 2. Reading then just the first two sections of the law of God. God gave Adam a law in the form of a covenant of works by which he bound him with all his descendants to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. He promised life if Adam kept the law and threatened death if he broke it. Moreover, he endowed Adam with power and ability to keep that law. Two, this law after Adam fell continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and, as such, was given by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, written on two stone tablets. The first four commandments contain our duty to God, the other six our duty to man. With this chapter in the Westminster Confession, we begin a whole new section. We've now completed the part of the Westminster Confession that addresses God's work in accomplishing and applying salvation to us and our response of faith and repentance and obedience. And now there's a change in the Westminster Confession, and the chapter is, is looking at the response of the believer, how to live the Christian life. You think of Francis Schaeffer's title of his old book, How Shall Then We Live?, uh, and that's what the Westminster Confession is doing from this point on. There's subjects on Christian liberty, on the Sabbath, our relationship to the state, what does Christian marriage looks like. So this whole section on Christian living begins, first of all, then, with the place of God's law. Here's the standard. Here's the light for our path. From the minutes of the Westminster Confession, we know that this section was one of the most intensely discussed subjects, one of the key topics in the whole confession. And it's really a very important subject for us in our day, all these years later, to hear that God has given his law is so contrary to our culture, where people are told you can find your own truth by looking inside and your feelings. Contrary to the Christian worldview, truth is outside of us. It's given by God. It's given by revelation. And so contrary to our culture, too, where people are told, even if you can find your truth, it's all relative to you. Everybody has their own truth. Again, contrary to Christian worldview, where God has revealed true truth and he requires everyone to obey his law, it's not optional. It's so important, this chapter, we can't really understand the gospel unless we understand the place of the law we can't understand a broken law is so serious that it required the death of Jesus Christ and that all who by faith put their faith in Christ, there's full pardon for a broken law, there's full cleansing, 
And the Holy Spirit then comes to each believer and writes God's law in our hearts that we have a greater desire and ability and willingness to obey him. So such an important chapter, the law of God. Tonight, just sections one and two. Section one is addressing God's law in the Garden of Eden. Section two is God's law after the Garden of Eden. And then thirdly, let's consider God's law in Christ, the second Adam. First, then, God's moral law in the Garden of Eden. It's addressing here that Adam was placed under the law of God. God gave Adam a law in the form of the covenant of works. And the confession here is teaching us that Adam was created with the ability to keep God's law. Adam was created with the knowledge of God's law. And Adam was created with the responsibility to keep God's law. First of all, Adam was created with the ability to keep God's law. We start with the last phrase in the section. He endowed Adam with the power and the ability to keep that law. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, God's word says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see what Paul's argument is? Paul's argument is that the Holy Spirit is now renewing in each believer what Adam had. We're going back to what Adam lost in his sin, righteousness. Similarly, in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the argument. If the Holy Spirit now is renewing us, then that's what was lost By Adam in the Garden of Eden, he was created holy. He was created with an ability to keep God's law. And scripture explicitly says this, Ecclesiastes 7.29, he was created holy and upright. It's the false teaching of Pelagians and others that teach that Adam was created neutral. Only the possibility to become holy. It's not biblical that Adam and Eve were created neutral and almost like they faced a fork in the road. They had to decide whether we will be good or whether we will be sinful. No, it's actually more horrendous. The fall into sin was that man who was holy chose to rebel and disobey against God. Adam was created with the ability to keep God's law. And secondly, Adam was created with the knowledge of God's law. Turn to Romans 2, 14 and 15. And again, it's an argument from the present to the past. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the scriptures, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. And again in Romans 1.32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So when did God's moral law, when was it written on the conscience? Section 2 begins, this law after Adam fell continued to be a perfect rule. God's, the knowledge of God's moral law was written on the heart, on the conscience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned, before they fell into rebellion. And it continues to be the human condition for all time. All people know instinctively, it's on their conscience, God's righteous law. 
Romans 1.18, all have a knowledge of God. All have a knowledge of his law in their conscience, even though they've never read the Bible. The conscience is there. This does not mean that man's partially good, not moral ability, that he retains a knowledge of right and wrong, moral capacity. So the moral law, when it was given in written form, Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, that's not the beginning of the Ten Commandments. That's only the, the written form of it. But the moral law of God goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Before they sinned, it was written on their conscience. And it continues to be written on the conscience of everyone who is born. So it's in part of the cultures of the world. Do not, do not murder. and Duty to parents. All people have this on their hearts because we've been created with it. And we're, sinful man is trying to suppress it. Psalm 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endures forever. Adam was created with the ability to keep God's law. He was created holy. Adam was created with the knowledge of God's law. He understood that. It was written right on his heart. And Adam was created with the responsibility to keep God's law. He was the covenantal head for the whole human race. He was obligated to keep the law, not just for himself, but as federal head of the whole human race race. The covenant that Adam was under is recorded in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know this is the covenant that was given to Adam First of all, by just how the terms were given. A covenant is a formal promise, a legal oath, with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And the scripture is telling us, here's the first covenant that was made with Adam. This is more than just a test. This command was the beginning of the covenant. And we see it from the language. Literally, the language is, eating you may eat, and dying you will die. Scott Sunday School class, this morning I learned a term I had never heard before. When the same word is repeated, it's an epizuxis. Because the Hebrew does not have comparative, it does not have superlative. You just simply repeat the word twice, or you repeat the word three times if you want the superlative. And that's what's written here into the covenant. Eating, eat. You're free to enjoy everything in this that I've created for you. The abundance. Except for this one tree. And if you eat from it, dying you will die. No doubt about it. You will certainly die. This is the covenant. And we know it's a covenant by other scriptures that refer back to this, even though the word covenant is not in Genesis 2. Hosea 6.11 tells us, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me, referring to the sin of Adam and the covenant he was under. In a parallel, just as Israel was under covenant with God, they broke their covenant, so they lost the land. They were sent into exile. So in the same way, Adam was also under covenant with God, and he broke the covenant, and he lost the land of Eden, and he was driven from Eden. And so theologians can refer to this first covenant in different ways. It can be referred to as the covenant of nature or the covenant of creation, emphasizing when it was made in the Garden of Eden. 
Or secondly, it's, you may have seen it as the covenant of life to emphasize the promise that God is giving to Adam. And it's used this way in the Shorter Catechism 12. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Or it's most commonly referred to as the covenant of works, requiring the, uh, focusing on the obedience that was required from Adam. And choose this way in the confession. The first covenant made with Adam was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience, Westminster Confession 7 to the, That was the covenant that Adam was placed under for the whole human race. So who are the parties to the covenant? Only two parties. It's bilateral in structure. It's not bilateral. It's not co-equal parties. You have the triune God, first of all, as the initiator of all of the covenants. God comes to man. God initiates this covenant In fact, God never comes to the creature except only through a covenant because God is infinite. He's the creator. There's such a distance between us, even sinless Adam and Eve. There can be no fellowship with God. There can be no relationship with God unless God comes and establishes the terms of that relationship. And he has to establish a covenant. Unless God stoops to us and establishes that relationship, unless he establishes a covenant, there can be no relationship. It's really an an amazing thing, isn't it, to think that God, in his aseity, who needed nothing, would stoop to put himself under a covenant relationship with his creatures. And only God may initiate the covenant relationship. Human beings can never say to God, I think it's time for a new relationship. I think it's time for a new covenant. We have no rights before God. We have no claims on him, no demands of any kind. You can't barter with God. And if this was true with Adam and Eve before they were sinners, how much more now with us who were born dead, Ephesians 2, and enemies of God, Romans 5. Sinless man, still a creature, without any entitlements, without any rights, without any merits. Only God initiates the covenants. And we are not equal parties in this covenant. God and man are never equal. Only God tells the terms of each covenant. Man has no right to arbitrate. Man has no right to negotiate the terms, no veto. We simply bow before God and accept the terms of the covenant. It's been that way all the way through redemptive history. And it's that way now. God designs the covenant on his terms and his wisdom and in his love. And our response is reverence and humility and accepting him. We have access to God the Father through Christ's blood because he inaugurated the new covenant. We have a relationship with Christ only because of the covenant. That's the one party to the covenant, the triune God, and the other is Adam as the federal head. The confession says, by which he bound him and all his descendants. Probably one of the most clear chapters uh, teaching this is Romans chapter 5. Twelve times in just the seven verses of Romans 5, 12 through 19, is the Greek word one. It's contrasting the one man, Adam, the first man, and his sin and his consequences to us, contrasting that to the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and his work of grace and the consequences of life to all who believe. 
Six times in those verses teaches that Adam was representing all humanity in his actions. Romans 5.18, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made or constituted sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many, all who trust in him, will be made or constituted righteous. Adam was representing all humanity in this covenant as the head of the race. We understand this concept in the political realm, even in our republic, that when a president signs a peace treaty, the whole nation is at a peace treaty with the other nation. When the head of state enters into treaty, every citizen is also committed to that. We're bound to what our representative head does. I think Pink, uh, A.W. Pink had a good illustration that God doesn't deal with, as a, deal with us as a cornfield, individual stalks. He deals with us as a tree. We are all the branches into one trunk and one tree, and if the root decays and dies, the whole tree dies. God doesn't place each person on probation separately. It's only in a modern Western culture that thinks that way with our self-individualism. In all, all other cultures, and certainly in a biblical mindset, humanity is regarded as one. Edgar writes, there is an organic unity in the human race that is more than just the composite of each individual. Adam was given a test to see if he would obey and remain faithful in the covenant relationship with his creator. Or would he seek autonomy? Would he seek rebellion? And he wasn't doing this just for himself. But God placed all humanity under the covenant in the Garden of Eden with Adam as our representative. God's moral law in the Garden of Eden. The chapter in the confession will expand more, God's moral law after the Garden of Eden, but look at section 2. This law, after Adam fell, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and, as such, was given by God upon Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments, written on two stone tablets. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six our duty to man. In the time of the Westminster Confession, it was common uh, for the church to understand that the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, one contained four of the Ten Commandments, the other one contained six of the Ten Commandments. We now know from archaeology that there were probably two tablets, but both were identical. Both had Ten Commandments on both of them. When a conquering king would come in, the suzerain, he would write up the peace treaty, two identical forms, and he would, give, he would keep one himself, and he would give one to the conquered. God is here writing the Ten Commandments in two copies, and he places both copies in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. Both tablets contain all ten of the Ten Commandments, but the first four commandments are focusing on our duty to God, and the last six are duty to man. The point here in the confession is that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are not new. They didn't come to us at Mount Sinai. <laughs> They came from the Garden of Eden. It's just, it's just now being codified. It's just now being written. As Jesus would say, that the, sum up the whole law. The Ten Commandments is the summary of loving God and loving our neighbors. So the Ten Commandments aren't just given to the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments aren't given to just the Jewish nation. They're given to all humanity, all dispensations, because they didn't begin with Moses. 
And that's what this section of the confession is, is wanting us to see. And for a greater way for the believer, this is the law that the Holy Spirit has written on our hearts, giving us the willingness and to obey his law. God's moral law in the Garden of Eden, God's moral law after the Garden of Eden. And thirdly, let's consider tonight God's moral law in Christ, the second Adam. What an important doctrine this is of the covenant of works and Adam's relationship of law before his creator, representing us. You see, because he's pointing to Christ, and Christ's obedience to God's law was the same, it's similar to the first Adam. Romans 5 is the argument again. Jesus Christ is the second. He's the new Adam. He, Jesus Christ comes and he places, he's placed under a relationship of the covenant of works. He's the only two human beings in the history of humanity that have been under the covenant of works. The very first Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus Christ as he came, representing his people as the head of a new race. All of the God's elect, all who put their trust in him. There's only two people in all of history who've been under the covenant of works. The first, Adam, failed and he brought all of humanity into ruin. And the second, Adam, came to obey all of God's requirements and he fully obeyed and so that he gives life to his people, to his new race, to his church. And so there is a similarity There's between Adam's obedience and Christ's obedience as the second Adam. But there's a far greater difference, isn't there? That's more the emphasis. Yes, both sinless Adam was tested in the garden, and Jesus Christ was recorded as being tested in the garden of Gethsemane, but the tests are so much greater for the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Adam had to only obey one command and submit to God's will or his own way on the condition of life or death. The second Adam... Jesus Christ had to obey the entire law of God, every thought and every word, every deed, every attitude, internal and all external behavior for 33 years, perfectly obeying his father to fulfill all righteousness. The first Adam had one temporary condition to test whether he would submit to God's will and he failed. Second Adam, the test was so severe, would he willingly, as a substitute, Take the, ju- the judgment of God's infinite wrath for sin. Sin wasn't his own. This test was so severe that Christ sweat, as it were, drops of blood, agonizing in the garden. And he passed that test and he responded, nevertheless, my will, thy will be done. First, Adam had to obey with no suffering. No difficulty at all. He was in a luxurious garden. All the trees of the garden, eating, eat. He was in a context of he was being given every desire of his heart. Christ, the second Adam, faced his test while he was taking the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. He did this in a state of utter brokenness and weakness and shame and agony and the cruelty of crucifixion. First Adam was given a test to obey in order to avoid death The second Adam, his obedience was to embrace death. And he willingly obeyed and he conquered death for you and me. 
And Christ's obedience to God's law has then earned us eternal life. God chose to save us based on someone else's fulfillment of the covenant of works rather than our own. Christ came as the substitute in his death for our sin. He came as our substitute in our obedience for our life. Where the first man, Adam, failed, Christ has succeeded. And he's perfectly obeyed the law of God. And this is what's credited to you in justification. First man, Adam, fell into sin and misery. And the first Adam were lost and dead. The world is plunged into ruin. Second Adam, he obeyed, he died for our sin and rebellion, and he rose as a victor and savior to give eternal life to all those who put their faith in him. And in the second Adam, we're made alive and we're promised eternal life and none of his will ever be lost. Paul tries often to compare these two figures, their two obediences. Romans 5, such a beautiful verse. But the free gift is not like the trespass, Christ and Adam. For if many died through the one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Christ's obedience is much more than Adam's in quantity. Christ's obedience is covering not only the sin of first Adam, but he's covering all of the sins of all of his people for all time. It's vastly more extensive. Colossians 2.13, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The obedience of Christ is much more than Adam's in quantity. The obedience of Jesus Christ is much more in quality. That grace has abounded for many. Literally, the word is overflowing. It's, Christ's obedience is much more than is ever needed to cover the darkest of your sins, the deepest of your sins, the sins of which you are most ashamed. Christ's obedience is much more in quality. Christ's obedience is much more in certainty. If God so willed and set up the first covenant that Adam's one sin could ruin so many, and we witness how death is inflexible, it's God's justice for all. If God has done that for one man's disobedience of one sin, how much more we have the assurance God's righteousness is for all who believe. You say, what does this have to do with you? It has everything to do with you. You see, you don't have to do anything to be part of this first covenant with Adam. You're born into it. That's the problem. Every one of us is born into the terms and the conditions of that broken covenant with Adam. We're all sinners and we'll all die. You're born into the broken covenant with Adam, the first Adam. Thomas Watson writes, and what a sad condition all unbelievers are. As long as they continue in their sins, they continue under the curse, under the first covenant. Faith entitles us to the mercy of the second covenant. But while men are under the power of their sins, they are under the curse of the first covenant. And if they die in that condition, they are damned to an eternity. The question is, How can you come into the covenant with the second Adam, with Jesus Christ? 
You're born into the first one with the first Adam. You come into the second covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Jesus Christ has come to take your place on the cross, paying for every sin that you have committed. And he has fulfilled all obedience that God's law requires. And that is given to you, simply imputed to you, by faith alone. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You're born into your first relationship of condemnation and death with the first Adam. The question is, are you you resting today in the second Adam? By faith, Christ's obedience alone for your salvation. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Are you in the new covenant with Christ? His blood, his righteousness covers you even though we have sinned. And you in the new covenant are invited to come to the Lord's table tonight to receive assurance again that his blood is the surety of the new covenant. It's based on his obedience. So he assures all those who take the supper by faith of the assurance of the forgiveness of sin, that gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounds, overflows for many. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come to the Lord's table after hearing of the broken law. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has given his life in death in payment for all of our sins and rebellion. Thank you for his act of obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, which is also credited to us by faith alone. Thank you that we stand before you then as believers with no condemnation, and that's the way we will stand even at the judgment. Father, we thank you that we can now come to the Lord's table where we hear this assurance that these things are true. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has promised us that our salvation is secure in him and the blood of the new covenant. We pray that each who partake in faith tonight will be assured of the forgiveness of their sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.